Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Well, it's winter out there, and while this may not be the snowiest winter we can remember, at least not yet, it's still bone-chilling cold outside, which means we're spending a lot more time inside than out. And if you're a history buff, you're probably looking for a really good history read to help get you through these dark days. So I thought I'd Skype up a group of Connecticut history movers and shakers and find out what they're reading this winter. Settle back and listen as Brianne Greenfield of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, State Librarian Ken Wigan, Sally Whipple of the Old State House, Jason Mancini of CT Humanities, and Christina Volpe of the Connecticut League of History Organizations tell us about their favorite winter history reads. Some great books and a few surprises coming up on this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. We are talking about our favorite winter history read recommendations, and I'm talking right now to one of my favorite people, who is Brian Greenfield, and she has just returned to Connecticut professionally, although I don't think she ever left personally, as the executive director of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. And we are all so happy to have Brian back. She is a force of nature and a wonderful powerhouse for history here in Connecticut. Brian, welcome home. Thank you so much, Walter. It's really great to be back and exciting to be at the Stowe Center. So you've come back at perhaps what you might be thinking is the wrong season. You know, it's cold outside, snow on the ground, days are short, nights are long. And this really is the time, if ever there is a time, when you really want to curl up with a nice, good history book and have a good read. You bet. That's exactly what you want to do. And what I've been asking people is, what's your favorite winter history read recommendation? So my history read recommendation, I think is going to come as a bit of surprise. It's Joan Hendricks' 1994 Pulitzer Prize winning biography of guest, yes, Harriet Beecher Stowe. It's called Harriet Beecher Stowe, A Life. I know. (laughs) Harriet Beecher Stowe, A Life by Joan Hendricks, a marvelous book. What's it about? Well, it's a, obviously, it's a biography about Stowe, but it's one of those great biographies through which you see the time period, but also you think about your own times and your own life, too. You know, Stowe, really, her life spanned most of uh, the 19th century. She was born in 1811, and she died in 1896. And Through the book, you really see through Stowe's eyes the social upheaval of those times. You know, it was a period of Western expansion, new immigration. There was the entry of women into public life increasingly. And, of course, the most contentious issue, which was the debate over the morality, really the immorality, right, of the institution of slavery. That's true, in which she played such a really crucial role in the ending of it, at least in this country. Yeah, she did. She also was a member of this very high-powered family. You talk about a, a period of great change. She and her family members were really involved in just about every aspect of the 19th century's major changes. 
They were. And she grew up in a very high-powered family. She was one of 13 children. And she had this really incredible upbringing that began in Litchfield that continued in Ohio when the family moved to the boomtown of Cincinnati. Then, of course, she came back to New England, eventually came back to Hartford as well. And the book traces her early development in Litchfield and her early education, which was really pioneering for a woman. It also shows how she developed her voice as a writer. And I think what's really exciting for me is it's just the complete human aspects of her, right? You know, she's a person of great accomplishments, but you can really understand and relate to her as well. Hedrick describes how she grappled with her religion, especially in the face of the suicide of her brother. She experienced the very personal way that she had to gain her voice as a writer And even things like her health struggles, because she went through a fair number of those, too, which were made even worse by the medicines that she was taking that was mercury-based. So there's there's a lot to... To, to her, and you're right, her family as well, quite a powerhouse family. So it sounds like Hedrick's book not only puts her in the context of the times, but really humanizes her in a very rich way. It does. It's incredibly well-researched. Uh, a lot of the research was done here at the Stove Center, which is true, too. And I think uh, we might be one of the best books for the winter because you can then follow up in the spring and come to the Stove Center and see her life from another perspective here at the house uh, and and experience, you know, what her surroundings were like um, and have another in- insight into the woman and then even take it further and have some insight into the legacy of Uncle Tom Cabin, the book as well. And you've just completed a, a just a major renovation and transformation at the Stowe House, right? We have um, just completed a, a really significant renovation of the house. It's never looked better. And it's fascinating because what it does is it explores the question of what were her motivations for writing Uncle Tom's Cabin? How did she find her voice? And it also takes the the story further, and it looks at uh, what the lasting legacy of Uncle Tom's Cabin was as well. Stowe was a woman who in many ways was exceptional in the way that she was able to transcend the boundaries of race and class and gender in her own life. But she didn't completely transcend them. And it's also true that she held on to racial ideologies of the day, that she saw blacks as inferior, as docile. She saw she she sort of spun that as them being more potentially Christian. But you can see the the, the racism in her own thinking and the way in which that plays out over time um, and really connects to our contemporary challenges is also something that we discuss here at the Stowe Center. Um, And we do that by really um, putting visitors into an immersive experience where they see period rooms, but they also see some gallery spaces. They're allowed to sit in the house. It's it's a really engaging space. So I invite everybody to come see. And there'll be flowers in the spring. I can promise you that, too. Uh-huh. <laughs> flowers in the spring. All of us can't wait for that. But let me ask you, it sounds like you, you loved a lot about this book. Was there anything that you really liked best about it? Oh, I think, you know, it was um, the chapters on her becoming a writer. She... She connected 
um, with the literary sort of parlor society. You know, you have to remember that before there was wide access to print um, and before there was sort of mass culture print pieces, which Stowe herself became the most successful at mastering that medium, that people often read a lot, that they wrote their own short stories, that they they read, they wrote letters, and that was an important pursuit, and they shared those letters, and still gained her voice as a writer by participating that um, in that culture, and eventually joined a literary society called the, the Semicolon Club, in which she met her husband, um, Calvin Stowe, um, but practice her, her work as a writer, and recognize also that she could make money as a writer by becoming a, an author in the magazine trade. So I got to say that thinking of, of, you know, how she learned to write, how she saw that as a, uh, a, a career for herself, it's pretty cool stuff. The semicolon club, exclamation point. Wow. This just sounds like the perfect winter event. You read Joan Hedrick's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel about Harriet Beecher Stowe, and then as soon as the snow melts, or before, you head over to the Stowe Center to see in person the place where much of the book happened. That's what I think the plan should be. There you go. Brian. thank you so much. This is going to be terrific. Having added, thanks to Brian's great description, Joan Hedrick's Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, Harriet Beecher Stowe a Life, to my winner reading list, I checked in with state librarian Ken Wiggin. He is one of the anchors, I guess, for the history community in the state. He's the person that many people look to when they seek wisdom and guidance. He's, uh, he's quite a guy. Ken, how you doing? Well, good afternoon. Thank you. That was a very flattering introduction. <laughs> well, it also happens to be the truth. You know, before we begin, I suspect many people listening to the podcast would like to know more about the ways in which the State Library uh, supports the needs of the history and heritage communities around the state. How about just telling us a little bit about the department you head? Sure, Walt. Well, the State Library is comprised of several different operations. The State Archives is a major component of the State Library, and of course, we are collecting mostly governmental uh, records, but we have a lot of other records that come our way as well. So we have documented from pre-colonial times all the way through um, the modern era. So those are uh, preserved in our uh, archives. We also, through the Museum of Connecticut History, uh, acquire historical objects and other information in three major areas. One is political history, the military history of the state, and the industrial history of the state. So we have lots of manufactured goods. We also have some of the big iron machines that made some of the manufactured goods in Connecticut. We also, uh, in the museum, maintain a database of um, all the patents that have been issued to Connecticut uh, residents and businesses. So it's kind of an interesting aspect of that work. The library itself, which is also the principal law library for the state, focuses on both federal and state uh, publications. So we have pretty comprehensive collection of any publication ever issued by any agency of the state. And although we collect all federal documents, we have a strong collection of Connecticut documents, which include maps, 
We have aerial surveys of the state for people that are looking at that aspect of our history. We also have probate records and a lot of uh, family histories, a lot of historical material, genealogical research. A lot of that is done here. We also have probably the most complete newspaper collect- Connecticut newspaper collection of anyone around, and we are continuing adding to that and also working to digitize a lot of that. So we also provide a lot of training for museum or for actually archives professionals and historical societies and others in how to preserve their material, how to improve access by developing finding aids. So there's a lot of different ways, uh, whether it's our physical collections or the training activities we have that we help support the history community. And really, I know from my own experience that uh, that only scratches the surface. So so let me see if I can get a commitment out of you now to at some point sit down and let's do a podcast about the library and history. What do you think? I think that would be great, Walt, because I think there is a tremendous story to tell from here, and um, it would take more than a few minutes to do that. Absolutely. And as interesting as this is, it's a little bit off of the topic that we really want to bear down on today, and that's winter history read recommendations. As the librarian-in-chief for the state of Connecticut, I'm sure people will want to know what your history read for this year would be. What's your pick? So I've been focusing on um, the last year uh, on World War One, And as you know, Walt, we've been doing a, a tremendous amount to document World War One history here in Connecticut. Um, so I, I got thinking about, okay, I've read a lot of history uh, books, but I haven't really looked at novels, and these are modern-day novels that have World War I um, as a theme or it's a major part of the book. So I've read a lot of mysteries and a lot of really interesting stuff. And then I last month came across uh, actually a book that was published in 2004 called To the Last Man, a novel of the First World War. And it was by Jeff uh, Sharas, S-H-A-A-R-A. And He's written a lot of, um, I guess, history book novels. I haven't really read them. But I think he did. I'm going to now. If but, I recall uh, correctly, I he did a novel on Gettysburg that became the basis for a pretty popular series. He did, and I guess he's done World War I, uh, World War Two as well. Well, tell us about his World War One book. So, To the Last Man focuses on the American entry into World War One. Although it initially starts with telling the story of a lot of World War, uh, a lot of American who volunteered over um, in Europe, particularly in the air service. So we first learn about um, Americans who were flying for the French and eventually became the Lafayette Escadrille. And from there, we go through um, the U.S. entry into the war with our forces building up there and then all the way to the end of the war. So it's really told more from an American side, but it really is fascinating. So tell us a bit about the story. Does he take you through the life of one person, or is it different people? Yeah, so the author uh, focuses you know, on telling the story through the lives of historical figures. And each of these characters becomes, well, they're actually even chapter headings. So in the early part of the book, when we're talking about the airmen, one of the folks we're talking about is Raoul Lufberry, who has a Connecticut connection, by the way. But he was an American living in, actually born over in France. And he flew um, as an American in a French book. So you have his story. And then the next chapter might be about uh, Baron uh, von Richthofen, 
the Red Baron. And so you're getting these parallel stories and then the interconnections. And then, because neither one of them survives too long into the war, we move on to Pershing, uh, who becomes a, a main character in the book, but also this young Marine from Florida. And so you're following their stories. Um, sometimes they're interwoven, sometimes they're not. But the war story unfolds through their their eyes. And so, you know, I mean, it's, an, it's a historical novel, so a lot of the narrative is made up. But he presents a lot of really good historical information. And in fact, at the end of the book, not too many novels have appendices, but this does. And, it, you know, it kind of follows the characters, uh, those that survived the war after the war, and what happened to them. So it's really interesting. And I like the idea of using, you know, these people as the focus of the story. In a way, you've been reading about or studying World War One pretty extensively for the past four years as part or even longer as part of the library's commemoration and heading up the centennial. How did this book round out or support or supplement what you'd learned from other sources? So I think what it does is it puts a personal twist on the facts that we know. We know how horrible trench warfare was. The author is able to really help you visualize that through his narrative. But it also lets us know what the soldier was feeling, what was happening. There's also, you know, you can read per, you know, read about Pershing and yes, the great general, but to read about how frustrated he was and how he had to deal with the French generals and the English generals and his own president, who wasn't always on his side. And his own personal story become part of this story. So I, I found him a more compelling character than I think I may have through some of the, the books I've read um, about him. I mean, it, it's not a biography, but I think he drew on some really good biographies uh, of Pershing to make him a more uh, readable character. I have to say, I mean, this is a 600-plus page book, and Mr. Wiggin does not normally tackle books that size. but um, And it held your interest throughout? It did. I think the way he constructed this, as I said, having each character be the focus of a chapter um, and then, you know, alternating those kind of kept me moving along. And I, and I kept picking the book up over and over. And I mean, I got through it in much better time than I normally do. And I wasn't skimming it because every word was important. And some of it is, you know, it's quite moving. It, it's a good story. You know, one of the problems I think historians sometimes have with historical fiction is you read something and you you know about a period or you, you know, you, you've got some fairly deep knowledge about what happened. And something in that character's dialogue or a description of a scene doesn't jive with what you know really happened. And then it's kind of jarring. Did you have any of that experience or did did the author really do his research very well? I think he did his research really well. I mean, you the, when he was talking about the airmen, you could almost, I mean, they're up in their planes. You could feel the fragility of these planes. I mean, you know, <laughs> the top wing of a biplane would blow off or, you know, the rips and tears and the bullets going through these planes. I mean, that was really well done. And it's true. I mean, I, I did find myself occasionally <laughs> going and looking up some of these things. Is this really true? And yes, it was. And I think that this author has that ability. And he 
neither did he didn't glamorize the war nor did he become really preachy he told you how horrible it was that the war in you know the way the war ended and there were soldiers still being killed on the 11th hour of the well you know he didn't he makes that clear but he doesn't go off on that and that doesn't become the focus of the book the people are the focus of the book this soldier from florida yeah i'm sure the narrative is all made up but he's researched this character and then he a lot of his buddies came from different parts of the country you know and then how did that all work out so i i do think that there is that danger when i was a you know, I was in college studying history. I made a real effort not to read historical novels, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't get confused. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Between the facts and the fiction, but now, I mean, I'm comfortable enough reading. And I and I read some novels that go, oh yeah, right. You know, that didn't really happen, but it made for a good storyline. This, the storyline of the people. So, and and the war is is there, um, and it's not quite secondary, but it it. It, the two just play so well together, and I think he he really does an outstanding job of his research and then developing a narrative that really flows. He's a good storyteller. Just out of curiosity, does he include civilians who were affected by the combat in the story, or is it all military people? No. Um, often it is, you know, the soldier, the airman uh, would often relax by going to this little bar um, the interplay of the local people, the bartender, you know, they're all drinking pretty bad wine at that time. There wasn't much. But, I mean, you you got a sense that, you know, the people were hurting as well. The Red Baron's family, I mean, learning about his going back in Germany, how Germany used him, the Kaiser used him as a propaganda piece, you know. And so you, you do get, the you know, what is happening to the people but it also told through these people's interactions. So these characters are interacting in the real world. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's really good. You have certainly made a compelling case for everyone to run out and read it, 600 <laughs> pages and all. If you would, title and author again. To the Last Man, a novel of the First World War, and Jeff Shara, S-H-A-A-R-A, and it was published in 2004. Well, Ken Wiggins, state librarian, you've given us much to read. You actually, all 600 pages at the rate uh, I read could get me through March and April. So I'm really appreciative. <laughs> okay, well, well, thank you so much for asking. Thanks to Ken, Jeff shares to The Last Man, a novel of the First World War, was now added to my winter read list. And with the page count piling up, I talked to Sally Whipple, executive director of the Old State House, to find out what's on her reading list. It is my pleasure now to be talking with Sally Whipple, who is the executive director of the Old State House and uh, someone who's going to talk to us about her winter reads. Hi, Sally. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Before we talk about your reading list, tell the people who haven't been there recently about what's going on at the Old State House and what they can see when they come there. It really is 
uh, history central for Connecticut in so many ways. Well, it is a wonderful place. I think the highlights that I always like to mention is that we have a an original Gilbert Stuart portrait of George Washington, which is just stunning. And that is in the restored historic Senate chamber. And we also have Mark Twain's bicycle, which is here on loan from Connecticut Historical Society. And that's on exhibit in a great uh, on exhibit in a room that tells the story of Hartford. And we have um, a Museum of Curiosities, which was is a reproduction of one that was here in the 1790s. And that is um, that actually has a two headed calf in it. So there is literally something for everyone here. But first and foremost, it is one of two state, the two um, state capitals for Connecticut, and it was in um, in use as a state capital from 1796 until 1873. And it is a beautiful federal building with programs and. Lots of things to learn about inside, including a giant Lego old state house replica. And we also do a program called Connecticut's Kid Governor, and we have um, a Kid Governor's office and exhibit as well. As you know, I've been calling people up and asking them about their favorite winter history read. Sally, what are you reading? Well, right now, um, I, I've read one, which I'd like to talk about a little bit, and the one I've just started is The History of Surfing by Matt Warshaw, which is a really good read about every facet of surfing from its very beginning um, till now. Talk about escaping winter. How better to do it than read A History of Surfing? Yeah, I just, I've just started it, so I only want to say a couple of things about that, but I like reading about the history of surfing in the winter because, obviously, it's a way to feel like you're at the shore and help you think about waves and how nature works and um, what life is like in the water. And I really enjoy that for the winter. But I also like it because surfing has a really um, interesting history. It's had an impact on our culture, and it's had ups and downs like waves over the years where, um, you know, it started out. Um, pretty much in Hawaii, and then was just almost destroyed by missionaries who went to Hawaii and tried to destroy surfing. So it's had its ups and downs. And when you read about surfing, you're not just learning about its history, you're learning about really the history of the world. It's a great way to think about travel, about technology. All kinds of things come into play when you read about surfing. And this book is the ultimate history of surfing book, and it really covers every single aspect of surfing. So are you finding that when you're reading this history of surfing that uh, you go to your happy, sunny place? Yeah, pretty much. Not not always, because it's not always very um, cheerful. Um, but it really does make it... When you think about surfing, and, and really the most beautiful writing about surfing is done by William Finnegan, who's a, a New Yorker writer. He's written a book called Barbarian Days, which is just spectacular. Um, but when you read about surfing, you really do start thinking about the water and, and the play of water and the rhythm of water. And there is really, I think, there, it gives you a, a tie really to meditation and mindfulness because you always have to be aware in the water and it just 
ties to so many different pieces of life that it, it really is a good escape. And are you a surfer yourself, Sally? Absolutely not. But I became obsessed with surfing through William Finnegan's work, and now I am really trying to read everything I can about surfing. It is often fascinating that you can look at one simple cultural practice, and when you really deep dive into it, it opens up a whole world of new insight and understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, now that I think about it, the way I got into William Finnegan was by reading a book about waves, because I have had a lifelong fear of tidal waves. I don't know why. But I decided to face my fears last winter, and I read a book um, called, I think it was The Wave. And then I got interested in surfing and eventually found William Finnegan. You never cease to amaze me, Ms. Whipple. <laughs> Tell us the title again. It's called The History of Surfing, and the author is Matt Warshaw. You really have made a compelling case for this book. I think I'm going to pick one up myself, and I'll meet you in Maui. Sounds perfect. Now, let's move on to something that uh, maybe is a little less California and a little more Connecticut. What else are you reading in the history field? Okay, well, this is going to be a, a weird thing to bring up in this context. But I actually, over Christmas vacation, started going through old boxes of old papers. And I found my book, Meet George Washington, by Joan Heilbronner. And it was written in 1964. And I read it when I was about six or seven years old. Oh, and I reread it. And it was great. So it is a first grader or second grader's introduction to the first president. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell us about it. This is a book written in the 1960s, 19... 1964, and you can still buy it on Amazon today. It is con continues to be in print. It's called a landmark book, and they have meet all kinds of different people, but this one is Meet George Washington. Are there any ways that, as you were rereading it today, that you look back and said, boy, this, is, this really is a marker of the times in which it was written? Yeah, you know, there are many ways that it is a marker of its time. For example, um, George Washington married pretty Martha Custis, and she was very pretty. Um, and that's pretty much what it says about Martha. But it really is interesting in that it, I, I noticed that it mentioned um, enslaved people twice in the first three pages, and then once again later on. So they did not back away from that. Of course, they, they cover that topic as just sort of a passing thing. You know, you can see the differences between how, how we know and understand and think about and talk about things today and how they did then. And I think that's what makes it so, one of the things that makes it so interesting to reread it is you can look with your current eyes at it and really read between the lines and behind the lines and really get a sense of how our own culture and experience has changed over the years. And I find that a really interesting thing, not in just reading a book that was written a long time ago, but really in reading a kid's book to see how they were presenting these ideas to kids was really interesting. Well, indeed, because these are really, you know, most formative years for all of us. It's a critical moment of cultural transfer, I would argue. And so what you're talking about is really a lot more important than just a primary school kid's book. Were they glossing over slavery or they just... They just mentioned that his father owned slaves and that he owned slaves is how they put it, I think. 
but they do mention it in a few different places. And I, I thought um, that that was interesting. I wasn't expecting that. It, you know, this is a period that is in the, well, it's kind of the middle stages of the civil rights movement, 1964, 1965. So if you were around then, it was a hot point issue, but it was certainly top of mind. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, I would love to talk to the author. I don't even know if she's still alive, but I would love to see, um, you know, how she decided what to put in this book, because it's all the stuff that you would read in a biography of George Washington today, written in very large print. It, the, the main message of the book is he was a brave man who learned from his experiences. He did what, what he knew he must, and he never gave up. Um, but it does not make him look perfect all of the time. Now, that's that's interesting. So what kind of flaws do they show? Well, I think that they show, you know, some points of indecision. They show, um, you know, one thing that was really interesting to me was it shows time and again how he had to adapt to things that he couldn't control. If something was beyond his control, he had to adapt. And it was interesting to me to think there are three things that always stuck with me about this book. One was that it was written by a woman. Two was that George Washington was a surveyor. I didn't have no idea why that fascinated me so much. But his, according to the book, his mother didn't want him to go to sea, so he became a surveyor instead. And I think that that really stuck in my mind because throughout the book, you can see where he's in a bad situation and he has to think it through or adapt to things, adapt things to make um, make the outcome more positive for himself or the men he's fighting with or from the country when he's president. I kind of like that about it. So do they tell the Parson Weems story, the I cannot tell a lie, the old cherry tree story? No, is this is what's out? really interesting to me because it's the very last part of the book, the very last chapter, um, where they talk about how a city was named Washington after he died, and people named their children Washington, and there were songs and book about him. And then it says, everyone told stories about the great man, one story we all know. And then it took that, it tells that story. I think a lot of people don't know the story these days. Could you kind of reprise yeah, what it sure. is? Yeah, sure. I will and... read it to you right from the book. One day, George Washington took his hatchet, the story goes. He cut down his father's cherry tree. His father was not pleased. He asked George if he did it. I can't tell a lie, Pa, said young George in the story. You know I can't tell a lie. I did cut it with my hatchet. Run to my arms, you dearest boy, cried his father. And then the author says, this story comes from a book written after Washington died. Is it a true story? Probably not. But everyone seems to have liked the story. It was told all over the world. People wanted their children to know that George Washington was a good man. And I kind of like that she does that in the book. She's just straight out, yeah, this this isn't true, but it's a story that people use to teach their kids. Uh, you've made this really sound like a, a book well worth reading today to help us think about the times, not so much in Washington's day, although there's some of that, but back in the 60s, which was a formative period for yeah, our I own think times. So. And I, I haven't, you know, I'm going to admit, I didn't read this as closely as perhaps I should have. I did read through it, but I, I want to return to it and give it more thought. And I think that that is really my winter recommendation is sort of recommending that people go and find a book that they read, a history book, from a time, another time in their life. It doesn't have to be when you're six, as it was for me. But 
to find that kind of book and think about how culture has changed. But this book was also really fascinating to me because from a personal point of view, you know, there were three things that stuck out for me. It was written by a woman. George had to adapt to situations beyond his control. And the other thing that always stuck with me was the British playing the world's turned upside down when they lost the war. And I just was obsessed with that fact. I thought that was so cool. Now that I'm looking back at this, I'm thinking, okay, the, when I'm learning that about that song, it's teaching you about change and impermanence and how to face loss with grace. And when I read the book now and think about when I was six, my parents were getting divorced. And, and so I can see why I was impressed that a woman wrote the book. And I also can see why a story about adapting to different situations beyond control was a good lesson for me at that time. And also um, learning that a world can turn upside down but still turn out okay in other ways, that was a good lesson. So this book really stuck with me my whole life because it had personal resonance and it actually did do what it was intended to do, I guess. It told a story in a way that it, that gave a kid some life lessons. And I I just find that fascinating and I think going back and looking at Books like this that you've read at different points in your life could be very revealing about the culture and about yourself. And I think that is a very cool thing to think about in the middle of winter. It sounds like it was exactly the right book for you at the right time. Yeah. And and this idea of going back and reading a history book that you've read many years ago, I think that's really Excellent advice. I came to a conclusion several years ago. I was going back to some uh, history books that were published in the middle of the 19th century, and I was looking for a specific thing. So I spent a lot of times going through indexes. Mm. And one of the things I was just completely mesmerized by is how different the indexes authors in the 19th century uh, created were from the ones that are in history books today. The, the subjects that interested them and the way they characterize them are so different than now. It absolutely fascinated me. And my takeaway from that is that, like so many things, history is a fashion business. Yeah, yeah I'm so interested to hear you say that because that's one of the first things I'll do is look at the index and see how how they're doing it because it is so different. You look at things and they're picking out things you never would have put in the index or whatever. But yeah, it's really interesting to go back and look at these things and um, and and give it some thought and just think about it personally and think about it in terms of the history of the world and how things are presented. And of course, we all think about that all the time. But it was fun to go back and look at a book that I, I that stuck with me for my whole life and then to look back and see why, understand why it did. So Sally Whipple, in a short interview, you've taken us from surfing in Hawaii to uh, your childhood. And I can't think of a better way to escape winter than the last 15 minutes I've spent with you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Walt. I'm Walt Woodward. I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. 
Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayinctshistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayinctshistory.com soon. Todayinctshistory.com, because big things happened in this state on this date. We're in the middle of winter, but we're with friends, and that's a good thing. And I am talking to my friend Jason Mancini, who is the new executive director for Connecticut Humanities. So, Jason, tell everybody what Connecticut Humanities does. Uh, we're best known for our Connecticut Humanities Fund. So we have a competitive grant funding cycle for small historical and heritage organizations. We have a couple of digital humanities sites. Uh, one is ConnecticutHistory.org and the other is TeachAtCT.org. Uh, Educators and interested parties uh, around history and and, uh, heritage can go to these websites and check out the really great content, Connecticut-based content that we have and are continuing to add to. Uh, And then third, we uh, we host uh, the Connecticut Center for the Book. And through that, we have the Connecticut Book Awards and uh, Book Voyagers program for young readers and kids uh, who enjoy storytelling. Well, and books are what we're here to talk about today. So we're right in the thick of winter. A lot of people, myself included, and I'm sure you're one of them, would much rather be curled up inside with a warm history read rather than outside shoveling snow. So when you get that chance, Jason, what is it you're reading this winter? I am reading Leonardo da Vinci uh, by Walter Isaacson. Um, and I this is, this is just one of the best reads um, that I've had in a long time. Um, thorough, um, inviting, um, really deeply... Uh, informative about such an interesting person. What kind of insights does Isaacson give us into Da Vinci, the painter that uh, most people wouldn't know? Well, you know, here's, you know, when you hear Leonardo Da Vinci, you think Mona Lisa, you think the Last Supper. And, you know, those are, those are these sort of iconic portraits that, that Leonardo is so well known for. And there's so much around these famous paintings, but Isaacson really sort of explores Leonardo through the lens of his writings, um, all of his thousands of pages of journals that he's uh, tracked down and scholars have tracked down. And, and he really sort of looks at the course of Leonardo's life as it unfolded and, you know, how such a curious person explored the world and um, um, developed uh, as, a, as a human being, but as an artist, as a technologist. Um, as a traveler. We do know him for those iconic paintings, The Last Supper and the Mona Lisa, but he's known just as well for, you know, a, a handful of drawings, the mm-hmm. helicopter, the... The Vitruvian Man. That's the kind of scientific orientation we don't often associate with a fine artist. Yeah. So he, I mean, he really, um, Isaacson really explores, you know, all the, the, the depth of Leonardo's thinking that just cuts across, not just his, his precise thinking about perspective and um, design and, you know, other, other kinds of scientific measurements. Um, he, he was a deeply uh, 
uh, insightful person and, and very exacting in, in how he approached the world around him. What do you like best about the book? Um, oh, boy. Uh, I have to say I, I really enjoyed sort of uh, the, 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 his travel, taking Leonardo across the spaces of Italy and France and how each one of those experiences and the people he interacted with there um, sort of helped, helped develop him as um, this, this brilliant person. Um, and I think through, through that, being able to understand where he was, what he developed, um, and then sort of taking him through this chronology. Did Da Vinci see his scientific endeavors and his artistic talents as different? Were they part of the same thing to him? I think it was part of one big process. And, and what's interesting is when you see he, he's constantly revisiting these things. One painting might take 10 years and he's just picking away at little pieces of it. And along the way, he's learning something about um, sculpture. He's learning something about military warfare and other things like that. And each one of those little pieces of his life is helping to inform something else. And he's sort of drawing in and developing each one. Is this because he is such a perfectionist? Does he have some kind of ideal of the perfect painting that he's trying to achieve? Why that intense need to get it exactly right? Yeah, he seems he seems to be really aiming at you know this this deep perspective. He's he was incredibly perfectionist, and I think that really drove him, and and that's why he kept coming back to these things. And I think you know through the through the course of Isaacson's book, you know, we, we sort of see, you know, how he was able to accomplish something as spectacular as the Mona Lisa. And it was all of these different pieces uh, leading up to this, this perfection. Um, it wasn't a mistake. You know, he was aiming for this kind of thing. Did Da Vinci see the Mona Lisa as his ultimate achievement? Oh boy. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think it was um, I think it was something he was really aiming for, um, you know, in terms of the human form, um, the, the sort of uh, fumato that um, that he had practiced throughout his life and became quite famous for. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it was really aiming in that direction. Just this week, I heard a report on some radio broadcast that the Mona Lisa, one of the one of the things that's always been one of the attractions for visitors to the Louvre is that the Mona Lisa apparently appears to look at you as you cross the room, no matter where you are, she appears to be looking at you. Mm -hmm. And I guess they found out that she's not really looking at you. She's looking at your right earlobe. And... <laughs> I, I don't know what the significance of that is, but I thought that's that's pretty strange. Why would da Vinci, you know, try to achieve that effect? He, he I can't I can't answer that one, but I, I I think if I could just add one one piece to this, you know, it was just so enjoyable sure. to to read through and just understand all the contextual information for, you know, the the. Um, the spectrum of, of Da Vinci's work um, and, and, you know, sort of the, the things that we know, we think we know best about him is really sort of outlined um, and explored uh, more deeply um, in this, in this book. And it's, to me, it was just so enjoyable. 
How does Isaacson's study of da Vinci change the way you think about him? You brought a certain image of him to the book. Is it? Did you leave with the same one? No, very different. You know, it it not only informed his art, but his his, his personhood, who he was, and, and how he developed as a as a person, being an illegitimate child being um, a servant, um, you know, sort of finding himself in these different um, experiences because of his personal history, you know, he, because of these particular situations, he had access to things that other people may not have had, ac- had access to. You know, the fact that uh, he was homosexual and had relationships uh, with men. Um, you know, and exploring his partnerships with people uh, over time, uh, his pa- his partnerships and, and alliances with with incredibly powerful and wealthy people, as he became a sought after artist and technologist. Was he dependent on patronage? I know most artists of his age were. And... It became very important part of his his work. Yes, absolutely, and especially the Medici and. Um, um, you know, French royalty, um, you know, these, these folks became very powerful, uh, influential folks, um, the Sforzas um, in Italy. Did he ever buck at their input? You know, did he ever feel that he was, he was being treated like paid help? Do you ever get that sense? Um, I, I think he got frustrated sometimes, um, but uh, you know, and I, I think he he felt like his alliances were um, sometimes pulled in different directions. Um, you know, but he tended he tended to align himself um, in in interesting ways with people. Now, see, if he'd have had the Connecticut Humanities Council back then, all he would have had to do is get through the grant committee, and then he could have operated completely independently. It would have been a beautiful thing. You know, who who's going to be the Leonardo of Connecticut? There you go. And I've got to tell you, I find it really gratifying that the new leader of the most important humanities organization in the state chooses a winner read about one of the greatest humanists of all time. So, Jason, you picked a great book. Thanks, Walt. I'm glad I was able to share a little bit about uh, Da Vinci's life, and I hope other people will uh, pick it up and and see what's so great about this uh, brilliant mind. So, is it a long book? Is it going to take people a long time to get through? It is. Uh, 500, well, with notes in the 540 page. Yeah, it's, it's a long book, but it's, it goes fast. So, so even, even for a fast reader, it's a good blizzard buster, right? Absolutely, it Our is. final and youngest winter book reader is Christina Bolbe, communications director for the Connecticut League of History Organizations. Christina is wintering with a book about the final battle of the American Revolution. It's just full of surprises. With us now is Christina Volpe, who is the communications director for the Connecticut League of History Organizations and one of the young people entering the history profession in our state who uh, give me reason to think we are going to have a truly bright historic future around here. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Walt. I'm glad you feel that way. I feel that way, too. Excellent. Now, before we get started talking about your favorite winner, Reed, tell us a little bit about the Connecticut League of History Organizations and what you do there. 
Amazing. Yes, I'd love to. Um, so the CLHO, as we commonly go by, has been around since the 1950s. We really try to act as a clearinghouse amongst all of the heritage professionals in our state. So be that historical societies, house museums, or really anyone who works within the arts and culture field that wants to promote our small state's history. So one of our slogans is we want to connect you to Connecticut history. So we just try to build this wonderful community of people who want to learn more about their field, learn more about our state's history, visit each other's uh, respective institutions. And we host an annual conference once a year where our office is on the campus of Central Connecticut State University. We usually expect around 300 people. This year is going to be a big one. It's all about reboot, revamp, revitalize new ways of looking at your state's history. That just really sounds exciting. So it's winter. I'm actually looking out the window at uh, a dusting of snow on the ground, and I know it's cold out there because I took the dogs out for a walk. (laughs) We are talking about people's favorite winter reads. What's your favorite winter history read? So I have so many um, that I could have (laughs) chose from today, but I wanted to pick a recent one that was really um, great to me, and I, I received it in my Book of the Month subscription. This one came to me in October, so I put it aside because I knew that I wanted to be cozied up on the couch with it. It's Nathaniel Philbrick's In the Hurricane's Eye, The Genius of George Washington and the Victory at Yorktown. And it came out in October. That's when the Battle of Yorktown happened. So I was really excited for it because Nathaniel Philbrick has done a trilogy now of American Revolutionary War books. But this one was different because it really emphasized the perspective of the sea and Washington's role in trusting the sea and just kind of the the wacky things that happened for us to win the revolution and, and turn the tide unintended in 1781. So it's, it's really good. It's definitely a deeper read, but I was immediately enthralled when I read Rochambeau because we do have the, the Rochambeau Heritage Trail goes right through Connecticut. So anything with Rochambeau in it, I'm like, that's our guy. He was here. I need to know. You know, most people <laughs> don't usually, if they think about Yorktown and the victory at Yorktown, which of course was the battle that effectively won the American Revolution for the new United States, they certainly don't think about that as a sea battle, do they? But this book highlights that? It does. The argument here is really that in 1780 and in 1781, when Rochambeau was really working with Washington and trying to support the the Continental Army, there was a lack of funds, a lack of um, will in the army. You know, Nathaniel really goes into it right out the bat saying, we weren't in great shape. We weren't looking to win the war. And he really wants to emphasize that de Grasse's... That's the French Admiral de Grasse. Correct, yes. Movement from the West Indies in 1781 up the Chesapeake, which, you know, brought us the, the siege of the Chesapeake Bay. You know, really, that really set us up to have this massive force. And, you know, Philbrick also brings to light the British general, Cornwallis, really was... A, there's a quote here. I had to write it down for us because Cornwallis, in Washington's eyes, was passive beyond our expectations. So while all this movement was happening in the Chesapeake and the French army was really coming to reinforce the Continental Army, Cornwallis was more concerned with building himself up near New York City and not paying as much attention to what was happening upriver. So Philbrick really makes the argument that it was really like a perfect storm, pun intended, I think, on his part, of these little things that were able to make the American Revolution happen the way that it did. And if it weren't for the the might of the sea and our ability to kind of thwart the British naval might, you know, because that was the biggest army in the world at that time, if it weren't for some well-placed um, seasonal hurricanes and storms, if it weren't for some lack of communication on the British side, and if it wasn't for Washington's 
willingness to be open about the sea and to have his eye on the sea and what it meant for us that it wouldn't have gone the way that it did. And that's what's profound about this book. Well, it sounds like there is an ocean of knowledge, if you will, even about a battle that many people, I think, think they know pretty well. Exactly, yeah. And of course, Philbrick is generally a really good read, too. Did you find this book that way? It was so smooth. You know, I'm obviously biased as a historian, and I did. I knocked it out in like two days because I just couldn't get enough of this perspective of like the sea. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm I'm aching for some summer weather on the coast in Connecticut, but I just I felt really enthralled in it all. And it's not such a dry chronological military history. He really tries to get into Washington's thinking and uses a lot of primary source material, a lot of um, letters and correspondence, stuff that you know, clearly historians have visited in the past when writing this narrative, but it's in such a new way with an emphasis of the battles of the sea and the position of de Grasse and Rochambeau that it's a refreshing perspective. It's a new perspective on the Battle of Yorktown. Now, is there any particular moment that you liked best in the book that just stands out as these are the pages, this is the scene? I think the beginning is what really hooked me because Philbrick kind of makes it evident that we really weren't doing that well. And I don't know if it's just because of my like younger knowledge or just this kind of like really glazed, optimistic perspective of what Washington did in in the war. But I didn't realize in what bad shape we were in in 1780 and how many people were fleeing the army. And, you know, this is even before Benedict Arnold came forward. So it's kind of in my perspective, I was like, wait, what? Like, how much did the French really help us? You know, we talk about George Washington and his genius a lot. We know about French involvement, but really it had been the first time for me reading this book, seeing just how much the French naval forces really helped us win this war. And not only that, but Rochambeau loaning Washington money. Um, That was something new. You know, in my eyes, I was like, we can do it ourselves, (laughs) you know, but no, this book really offered me a new perspective. (laughs) We were far from being a rich country at that time. We we were, like Scarlett O'Hara, dependent on the kindness of strangers in very big ways. I love that quote. <laughs> so you will recommend this book to your friends? I have already um, loaned it out, so I don't actually have the physical book in front of me right now. You know, being on a wonderful campus full of history majors who are enthused, you know, the book is out of my hands. And like I said, it's not one that I usually would pick up. I work a lot with industrial age history in Connecticut. My first love was early Italian history, like 13 to 1500. So this is something for me that when it came in the mail, I was like, I need this perspective. I don't think I've, I don't think I've delved into this history enough. So it's also a really good book for people who feel like they don't know enough about American Revolutionary War history, which is a hot topic right now. You know, you think of the Hamilton craze. We're supplementing the pop culture with actual history. And this book is really good at doing that. So if you are enthused by everything that you're seeing about the revolution in pop culture, then I would recommend this book to supplement some of that and to really get you into those days and what it was like for the army and what it was like for Washington. Philbrick does a great job at that. Well, you have sold me on it. I am off to the bookstore this week. I'm going to pick up my copy and that's going to be my fireplace read for this weekend. Christina, thank you so much for doing this interview and for sharing your excitement about this book with us. It does sound like it's uh, something that'll be a great read and of special interest to people from Connecticut. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Stay Walt. Warm. I really appreciated your Thanks time. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Brian Greenfield, Ken Wiggins, Sally Whipple, Jason Mancini, and Christina Volpe 
For more great Connecticut history winter reading, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at cthistory.org. I'm Walt Woodward, hoping you'll come back soon for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.